Hi everyone, this is Dr. Cheryl Selman and welcome to The Love Code. Thank you for joining me today because, as always, these conversations that occur are just so inspiring and uplifting and that really is the purpose of The Love Code. This show is dedicated to supporting you on your spiritual journey, to expand your consciousness, your perceptions, to uh, enable you to open your heart and understand that you have the power to heal and create the life you desire. And as always, this is going to be another opportunity to really tap into the greater wisdom that exists within us. And um, I'm so glad, again, that you're here. And I do want to invite you, if you'd like to get the archived shows, if you can't listen live, then please go to my website, drcherylselman.com, drcherylselman.com, because I can then send all of the archive shows out to you. And that includes my other program on Progressive Radio Network, which is What Women Must Know, every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can also go to my Facebook page, which is is what women must know and uh, just uh, like me there because I post these shows every week on my Facebook page as well as sending them out to you so again you'll be able to catch all of them and um, I know you really don't want to miss any of these conversations because they're so enlightening and empowering and that is a great way for me to segue into my guest today and the conversation we're having. I'm really excited about what we're talking about today. It's kind of one of, I guess you can say it's a, 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 an area of great interest and fascination for me. And we're going to be talking about forbidden archaeology. Our ancient history is not what we've been told with best-selling author Michael Cremo. And let me just share a little bit about Michael. Michael, also known as the Forbidden Archaeologist, is hailed as a groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 1993, already translated into 26 languages, challenged the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up enigmatic discoveries in the fossil records and shake up accepted paradigms, exploring famous archaeological sites around the world, journeying to sacred places in India, appearing on national television shows in the United States or other countries, lecturing at mainstream science conferences, or speaking to alternative gatherings of global intelligentsia. As he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, he presents to his various audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality. He is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, as well as a research associate in history and philosophy of science for the Bhakti Vedanta Institute. So, uh, wow, it's uh, my great pleasure to have Michael Cremo with us today. And hello, Michael, and welcome. Good to be with you, Cheryl. So, uh, what I want to tell everyone and uh, and kind of share was that I first met you. We were trying to figure it out. It's got to be more than twenty years ago, at a conference in Sydney, Australia. 
hosted by Nexus Magazine, and I was speaking there, and you were speaking there, and you gave the most fascinating, fascinating presentation. And then I had the good fortune of meeting up with you again in Los Angeles and watched a more comprehensive presentation you did on your work and your research, and it just got me hooked. <laughs> it just opened my eyes. It was absolutely a revelation what you were sharing, and, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Um, the other thing I want to tell you, Michael, is that maybe because of you, um, and because of what I, 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 you know, I saw through your presentations, I, I have just been so fascinated by. Um, ancient archaeology, you know, the far distant past. And there's some great programs on Gaia, the network Gaia, which people can get to Gaia.com on ancient archaeology, it's called. And you've been on some of those episodes. And it's fascinating to realize that who we are and history as we've been taught in our history books is really based on evidence now so far from what really has existed on this planet, far, far further back in time than anyone ever has been taught, <laughs> at least in our modern times. And uh, there are ancient cultures that have been here doing extraordinary things for so long. And that's kind of my way of introducing our topic today because I, uh, you know, I have the master here. <laughs> this is your life. This is your research. And you found incredible things on this journey. So here's my first question to you, Michael. Just briefly, how did you get into this world where you have brought to light such an alternative but validated perspective on our history? It's, a, it's an unusual profession to have. How did this happen? How did you arrive here? Well, that that is a, a really interesting story. Uh, I think it has a, a lot to do with the way I was raised. Uh, my father was an intelligence officer in the United States Air Force. And, you know, that meant something for our family. Uh, you know, my mother and, you know, my father and my sister and brother and myself, we wound up traveling a lot moving to different places in the United States and Germany and other places. And you know, when I was about 16 years old, I was going to a, a high school, an American high school in Germany, at a, on, a, on a base in Germany. And for one of my vacations, I went to a, I went up to Sweden, to Stockholm, and I was staying in a youth hostel there. And I met some young people, Europeans, who had gone overland from Europe to India. It was, you could do that in those days. Now the Middle East is kind of a little difficult, dangerous place. But uh, in those days, you could do that. You could travel from Europe to India and back. And you know, I got fascinated with, you know, they were telling me all kinds of stories about the Ganges River and the Himalayan mountains and the yogis that they'd met. And I, I, I decided, you know, I, I wanted to go east myself. <clears throat> and 
kind of to prepare myself for that, I, I started reading uh, some of the uh, philosophy of ancient India and the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita and other texts like that. And in those literatures, I found accounts of human civilizations that existed millions of years ago in the very, very distant past. It was something quite different than anything I had learned from my teachers in high school or university when I went to university later on. And I began to wonder, well, is there any truth to what these ancient texts are saying, or is it simply just an invention, some kind of myth? So that's what got me interested in looking into the the history of archaeology. So and I I kind of progressed in my on my spiritual path as well and I became the the uh disciple of a guru from India and he he kind of encouraged his scientifically minded disciples to investigate the links between science, and the Vedas, which are collectively the uh, books that represent the wisdom tradition of ancient India. So I I became involved in looking into the history of archaeology. And if you look in the current textbooks of archaeology, you don't see any evidence for extreme human antiquity. You, you only see discoveries that go along with the, the current, current dominant theory that humans like us appeared fairly recently on this planet, having evolved from more primitive ape-like ancestors. But I decided, you know, I'm not going to just stop with the evidence that's in the current textbooks, I'm going to look at all the evidence. I'm going to look at all the reports of archaeologists and geologists and paleontologists and others who have been digging into the earth and see what they actually report finding. So when I did that, when I started, and I, not, I, I investigated reports not just in English. I have a reading knowledge of German, French, Spanish, Italian, most of the European languages. So I I looked at reports from the 19th century, the early 20th century, uh, and all these different languages in the professional scientific literature. And when I did that, I saw dozens and dozens of reports of scientists finding human bones, human artifacts, human footprints that go back many millions of years, far older than modern textbooks allow. So that's kind of how I got into it. And I I collected all of these reports and I put them together in the book Forbidden Archaeology. And that book made an impact in the world of archaeology. It got reviewed in all of the 
all of the major professional scientific journals of archaeology, and I got invitations to speak at scientific institutions around the world, like the Royal Institution in London, the Russian Academy of Sciences, uh, and I began to present papers about this this topic at major international scientific conferences, like meetings of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists. So that's kind of how I got into this line of, of investigation. Well, it's a fascinating world you've entered into. And, you know, not trained as, a, you know, as an archaeologist, you've kind of come at it from, you know, kind of often left field, so to speak. So that's why your work is so fascinating, because you're not trained by the orthodoxy. And I, um, you know, I, so let's begin. Let's talk about some of the discoveries that you found in the research. I mean, it was, well, let's talk about, maybe we, just briefly, let's talk about the orthodoxy in, in, in sciences, and particularly in archaeology, that there's a, there's a, a, a an established worldview that archaeologists have, uh, however they got there, and invested in, and have essentially uh, a, a closed mind to anything outside of that worldview, which is why your work is has been so challenging for you, because you're presenting another alternative, another another point of view of who we are, which I think is a really important question to ask, when we can get into that as well. But but you know, let's just talk about how archaeology works as taught in yeah. university. Well, I, you know, I think you've hit on an important point that you know I'm approaching these questions from another worldview. I mean, basically, as I said, I I I became the disciple of a, a guru from India, and I practice a kind of yoga. It's called bhakti yoga, the yoga of devotion, the yoga of love, you could say. So. <clears throat> And that's based on the idea that ultimately we're all beings of pure consciousness and we're meant to experience our existence as purely conscious beings with the characteristics of eternality, knowledge, and pleasure, or ananda. So that that is the worldview that I'm approaching these questions like who are we, where did we come from, the kinds of questions archaeologists ask. I'm approaching it from the standpoint of consciousness and spirit. And they're approaching it from the standpoint of matter. You know, that's a, a decision you know, that they've made. So from their point of view, whether they're talking about human life or any other kind of life, you know, they're thinking for the most part that, well, we're purely material beings. We're, you know, machines made of molecules. And when they think of, well, how did something as complex as the human form come into existence? You know, they think, well, 
you know, because they rule out consciousness of any kind existing separately from matter. You know, they want to explain everything in terms of the interactions of matter. Well, they would say, well, in the beginning on the earth, there was an ocean, there were molecules in the ocean. Some of them combined together to form some first uh, self-reproducing cell. And then later on, some of those one-celled creatures started clumping together and forming multicellular creatures of both the plant and the animal kingdoms in the oceans, in the water. And then some of those plants and some of those animals made their way onto the land. So you have land plants, you know, turning into all kinds of vegetation and trees and things like that. And then you have the life forms that came onto the land, you know, turning into amphibians and reptiles, and then finally mammals, you know, some kind of primitive apes and monkeys, not exactly like the kind that you see in the zoos today, but, you know, still some kind of ape or monkey. And it gradually turns into human beings, and that's rather late. And, and that's that's their basic worldview. They think humans like us first appeared about 200,000 years ago. Now, from the standpoint of uh, the spiritual tradition that I'm part of, and many other spiritual and ancient wisdom traditions, the human form has always been available to conscious selves who enter the material level of reality. You know, the human form enables us to understand what our position really is or should be. And it's something that's always been available. So, what I've shown, because shown, you know, I'm, I'm really not so much interested in the stones and bones themselves, but for the fact that they show that the current theories that try to explain everything in terms of only matter aren't going to work, that we have to bring in the idea of consciousness. But I'll give you some examples of some of the archaeological discoveries that contradict the evolutionary account that I've just laid out, which is the mainstream scientific idea that's taught in every every ed- government-controlled educational system in, in, the, in, in the world, basically, uh, with some very few exceptions. Uh, some of the evidence that contradicts that is like the California gold mine discoveries. You know, in, in the 19th century, gold was discovered in California, and miners went there to get it at places like Table Mountain in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in Central California. 
And to get the gold, the miners were dug, digging tunnels into the sides of mountains. And inside the, the tunnels in the solid rock, the miners were finding human bones and human artifacts like obsidian spear points, stone mortars and pestles. I mean, these things may seem simple, but according to archaeologists, it requires someone of human intelligence like ours to make them and use them. So the, uh, and there were human skeletal remains found that were also anatomically modern. And these things were reported to the scientific world by Dr. J.D. Whitney. He was the chief government geologist of California in the late 19th century. And you know, he wrote a massive report about them that was published by Harvard University. But you know, we don't hear about these discoveries today because the layers of rock in which these human artifacts and human bones were found are, according to modern geologists, about 50 million years old. And that is just beyond imagination for most archaeologists today. They can't even comprehend such a thing. According to their picture of the history of life on Earth, that that is just completely Im impossible. So uh, one of the contemporaries of Dr. Whitney was Dr. William Holmes. He was a he was an anthropologist who worked at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington D.C. So he was a very prominent anthropologist and he he wrote to his scientific colleagues in one of his uh, publications that if if dr whitney had understood the theory of human evolution he wouldn't have come to those conclusions despite the imposing array of evidence testimony that he was confronted with. In other words, I'll translate that into more common English. If the facts don't fit the theory, the facts should be thrown out. <laughs> and 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 basically, you know, that's that's what happened. These these facts were thrown out. I call it knowledge filtration. Yeah, the, the, there's a, a knowledge filter that operates in the world of science. And basically it goes like this. Evidence that conforms to the dominant theory in a discipline passes through the filter very easily. And that means you'll hear scientists talking about it. You'll see it on the Discovery Channel and you'll at scientific conferences, they'll be talking about it. It'll be mentioned in the textbooks. But if you've got evidence that may be just as good, but which happens to contradict you know, the dominant theory, it tends to get filtered out, put aside, dismissed on very flimsy 
grounds, uh, in other words, suppressed in, in many ways. And that means it, you don't see it mentioned in the textbooks. Uh, you don't hear scientists talking about it very much. So if that just happened once or twice, well, maybe you could kind of overlook it. But what I've shown in my works, like Forbidden Archaeology, is that it hasn't happened just once or twice. It's happened hundreds of times so that we're, we're not being presented with the complete set of facts, you know, that we, we really need, you know, to draw our conclusions about human origins and antiquity. Basically, we're talking about our identity. You know, we're, we're not being given uh, the facts that will help us understand our identity as human beings on this planet, where we really came from, where we really are now, and what we should be doing for the best possible future. So that's that's why I'm interested in these things. So share with us some of the other amazing uh discoveries that had been made by archaeologists and then shelved because they didn't fit into the prevailing paradigm and, and they didn't pass that filter you're talking about that are quite extraordinary. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, some people will say, say about the case I just mentioned, the uh, California gold mines case, the, the, that the the report by Dr. Whitney was published by Harvard University in the year 1880. So they could say, some people do say, okay, that was a long time ago. We've made so much advancement since then. If those kinds of things were being found back at that time, then why aren't they being found today? you know, by, you know, the, the modern archaeologists who are going out and digging, and why aren't they reporting such things? And actually, I'm going to give you a case, a fairly recent case from the year 2016, which demonstrates that archaeologists are finding such things, but because of the process of knowledge filtration, they can't recognize that that's what they found. Now, this case was reported in a publication called Nature Communications. It's one of the prominent scientific peer-reviewed journals. And this team of archaeologists reported finding at Ulduvai Gorge in Tanzania in East Africa a finger bone of a hominin. A hominin means, you know, the family of creatures that includes uh, ape-like creatures that are developing, according to their theory, into humans. So that would include creatures like Australopithecus and Homo habilis and the Neanderthals and 
Homo erectus and so on, leading up to the Homo sapiens. So they found this finger bone, which was hominin, and it was found in layers of rock 1,800,000 years old. Now, these scientists very carefully studied this finger bone, and they did all kinds of measurements on it and, and compared the measurements of this finger bone to the finger bones of different species of apes and monkeys, like chimpanzees, baboons, and then also different species of fossil hominins, you know, ancient so-called or alleged human ancestors like Australopithecus, Homo habilis, and so on. And then they also compared this finger bone to the same finger bone in anatomically modern humans. And in their scientific report, they say it fit the finger bone that they found at Ulduvai Gorge was exactly like those in the modern human group. And it was different than the finger, same finger bone found among different species of apes and monkeys and different species of fossil hominids like Australopithecus, Homo habilis, Homo erectus, and so on. So, but then they said, although in form it's human, we can't call it Homo sapiens because of the age of the formation <laughs> in which it was found. So what are they you know, left they, with? <laughs> they just can't. They, just, <laughs> they have found something really amazing. You know, if they could just make the connection, okay, it's 1,800,000 years old. It's human. This is evidence for humans like us existing 1,800,000 years ago. Now, because they have the idea, they've been taught throughout their whole you know, this is a, an example of a, a phenomenon that was noticed by psychologists in a, in a study they did. In this experiment, psychologists took a deck of cards, you know, standard deck of playing cards, and they changed some of the cards in the deck. So they had, for example, a six of hearts which is normally red, you know, red color, the six hearts, the six would be red in a standard deck. But they turned the color to black. Or they took a four of spades, which would normally be black, and they made it red. And they put into a deck of cards several of these altered cards, and then what they would do is they would show the deck of cards to a subject in the experiment. And they'd show the person 
one card after another, and the person would have to say what the card was. And when they would come to these altered cards, they would just, they wouldn't say, well, wait a minute, you know, something's wrong here. You know, they would see the uh, black six of hearts, and they'd just call it six of spades, you know, even though it's Mm -hmm. hearts. Or so what they found is that people will, even when something is right in front of their face and they're looking at it, they can't recognize it for what it is. They can't recognize, they see see what they expect to see. So the scientists who were confronted with this evidence at Olduvai Gorge, even though it was staring them right in the face, it's 1,800,000 years old, it's human, it's homos, evidence for Homo sapiens at 1,800,000 years ago, they just can't see it you know, for what it is because of their mental conditioning. So, that, so they'd rather, so, so really what you're saying is people would rather have allegiance to their belief systems than to have an open mind and reevaluate their perception of reality based on new evidence. They, they really have a closed mind, so nothing can come in. Even though, they won't even, said, even though the evidence is right there in front of them, they won't recognize right. it for what it is. Yeah. For, for so, so many reasons. So, so, so uh, I, there was something I, that I believe I, that I remember from your presentation, and you, you'll, I hope it's correct memory, but it was a slide where there's a, I think it was a woman archaeologist found at the time of dinosaurs, which supposedly humans didn't exist at that time, footprints of humans, or maybe even more, right? Wasn't that one of the pieces? Yes, it's something like that. That would be a discovery that was made in 1979. And and it also happened to be in Tanzania, but not at Olduvai Gorge, but another place called Le Toli. And the, uh, the woman archaeologist who made the discovery was Mary Leakey. She was the wife of Louis Leakey, who was a prominent archaeologist who made many interesting discoveries in Africa and also at one site in the United States also. And but you know his his wife you know she was also an archaeologist and she made her own discoveries so these footprints they they were trails of footprints you know dozens of footprints of three individuals who were walking side by side and you know these footprints were made in volcanic ash that had solidified in other words, some volcano had been erupting in this part of Africa, and it laid down a layer of ash, and these uh, creatures who made the footprints were walking through it. 
and the footprints got preserved into the in the solidified volcanic ash it solidified later on turned to stone keeping the impressions of the footprints in it so these footprints the the ash you know it can be dated using scientific methods turned out to be 3,700,000 years old and in her original report, which was published in National Geographic magazine, Mary Leakey said, these footprints are exactly like those of anatomically modern human beings. And other scientists also agreed with her. There was a paleontologist, Tim White, who said, make no mistake about it, they're like modern human footprints. They're just like the footprints that you or I would make if we were walking on a beach today. So, again, when I read something like that, the alarm bells kind of go off in my head. Here's another anomaly, you know, being reported by prominent scientists of recent times, you know, not the 19th century but scientists using modern investigative techniques and scientific dating methods and reported in you know, prominent scientific journals, you've got footprints. They're in layers of ash, 3,700,000 years old. They are just like the footprints of anatomically modern humans. To me, that's evidence that humans like us may have been existing almost 4 million years ago. Now, keep in mind, most scientists today would say humans like us appeared less than 200,000 years ago. And so neither Mary Leakey nor Tim White or any of the other scientists that were part of their team even even entertained the thought that humans like us could have existed at that time. So how did they explain the footprints? Well, they said in their scientific reports, there must have existed at that time some kind of hominin, some kind of ape man uh, that had an ape-like body but feet exactly like those of modern humans. <laughs> now, That's such a rational explanation. That makes sense. The, the original discovery made no sense, but the, the fact that they just made up something that was, seems absurd makes perfect sense as long as it fits into their paradigm. Right. Yeah, so again, it's, it's uh, one of the ways that this process of of knowledge filtration works. So, uh, yeah, so I, I think that's the case you're referring to. It's not as yeah, old as the dinosaurs, but... but well, that's pretty uh, old. It goes back. But there was one, and there's one other slide that really has always stayed with me. And it was um, where you showed there's um, um, 
I don't know whether it was in Wales or it was somewhere in the UK, a woman took a big chunk of coal, right, and she was going to put it into her fire, into her, into her stove. Do, do you remember what I'm referring to? Yeah, yes. Uh, and then it opened actually, up and what she found. She found a gold chain inside. Yes. And it was a it was a linked chain too, right? It was gold. Yes. Yes. Inside it was. a chunk of coal. Yeah. Yeah, that was uh yeah, there was a uh, her name was Mrs. Culp. And and this took place not in England, it took place in the United States in uh, the state of Illinois in the late 19th century. So the newspaper just had this account. You know, she was putting some coal into her coal-burning stove, and the piece was too big, and she kind of whacked it so it would break into smaller pieces. And inside, you know, she found this gold chain. And it was solidly embedded in the coal because when she picked up the chain, there was chunks of coal still attached to the ends of it. You know, in other words, it wasn't something that just happened to drop onto the floor among the pieces of coal and she picked it up and it has nothing to do with the coal. No, it was solidly embedded in the coal because when she picked up the chain off the ends of it there were still chunks of of coal uh that the the chain was embedded in and attached to so from the reports i was able to tell what mine the coal came from and from that, we were able to determine how old the coal from this particular mine was. And it goes back about 300 million years. So this is one of the uh, very extreme, you could say, anomalies. But the basic idea, as as far as I'm concerned, is is that basically... The human form has always been available on this planet because our planet has a purpose. The universe has a purpose. We're not just beings who have evolved in an accidental universe. We're beings of pure consciousness who have been placed here with the opportunity to realize our full potential as beings of pure consciousness. And the fullest expression of our existence as beings of pure consciousness is the principle of love, unselfish love. And that is something we're meant to realize not just in our temporary lives on this level of reality, but at the highest level of spiritual realization beyond the world of matter. So the world 
exists for a purpose to and that purpose can be best realized in the human vehicle when the conscious self is placed in the human vehicle it's just like you know if we were going to send you know uh, you know construct a, a space station out in outer space around the earth you know the scientists don't just build the space station and then hope that somehow or other the chemicals in the space station will combine together to form some first single-celled creature that will someday evolve into human beings who will be the astronauts. No. When when the spaceship is created, the astronauts are there for it. So when our spaceship Earth was first manifested billions of years ago, it was for the purpose of having conscious selves have the opportunity to occupy that human form of life. Now, if the conscious self misuses that opportunity, then there are so many other forms of life it could occupy, plants, animals, insects, birds, fish, and so on. But in this human form, we have an opportunity to fully develop our potential as beings of pure consciousness. So that's, to me, that's the ultimate significance of showing that humans have been around for a long, long time, basically going back to the very beginnings of the history of life on, on, on this planet. Which really stretches people's heads, you know, and, and that causes, you, you know, everything, everything has to be reevaluated when you operate with such a big thought. I mean, the Vedas, the Vedas say humans, humans like us have been here for how long? Michael? Um, We've always been around in one form or another because there are, there's not just our universe, there are millions of universes and they're undergoing cycles of manifestation and unmanifestation. You could say creation and destruction. So, and, and all of, but we have to keep in mind that these universes exist for a purpose that is to give conscious selves the opportunity to evolve their consciousness to fully express their consciousness which will be achieved when they graduate from the cycle of birth and death in the material universes and come to the platform of eternality, knowledge, and pleasure, ananda, which can be experienced on that level. And that's the fullest expression of love. So, I mean, this is so profound and and really, uh, obviously, 
when you share this, encouraging people to really step into their spiritual selves and do the work so they can remember and realize who they really are. So I, I, there's, a, there's a question I want to ask you, though. Based on the teachings, based on your studies with your master, with the ancient, and I lived, I think you know, I, I lived in India and I lived in South India, and I know that the, that the, this ancient, ancient tradition really originated in South India. The Rishis and the Vedic tradition, right? South Indian is South India. That is where you find uh, a very pure expression of it. Yes. Right. What is what's what's the what's your understanding at, at, of of the, the of our destiny at this point in time? Well, our, as as conscious selves, we're all actually eternal, and we find ourselves now in an op, in, in a at a time when it's very challenging to be a person who is trying to understand. I'm a being of pure consciousness. You're a being of pure consciousness. We're all beings of pure consciousness. There's no need to divide ourselves up on the basis of superficial differences of race or nationality or gender or whatever those uh, external differences may appear to be. Because, because our whole civilization, the way it's now structured, it's structured on the basis of having people deny their identity as beings of pure consciousness. And they are trying to, the whole civilization today is designed to focus our attention on being on our material identities, our temporary material body, and to produce and consume material things to the greatest extent possible. And but if if we had a yeah and, and therefore they try to teach that yes, we are purely material beings. Consciousness is just a byproduct of chemical interactions in the brain at the time of death when the chemicals disorganize, then there's no more consciousness, no more love, none of that. None of none of that. You know, so just be good producers and consumers of material things in competition with others who are trying to do the same thing. And I think that's why we have so much violence on all levels of human society and so much environmental degradation and destruction. If we had another sense of identity that we're all beings of pure consciousness, then we wouldn't divide ourselves up into so many competing groups we would try to f- satisfy our material needs in the most simple natural 
efficient and fair and equitable way possible. And it would be an entirely different kind of civilization. But at certain times in the cycle of ages or yugas, that situation is there when the whole society is organized in such a way as to facilitate people developing their consciousness to higher and higher levels. But as the cycle of ages progresses and we come to what we call the Kali Yuga, uh, those, those kinds of qualities have disappeared, especially from the leading circles in human society. So uh, in terms of our destiny, you could say, well, we're in a time, the Kali Yuga, of increasing environmental and social disturbance. And, yeah, I just got a little, I mean, we're getting a little taste of it today. I mean, I, I live in Los Angeles today. I went out to do some shopping to pick up some food items. And in the store, there there are just lines of hundreds of people at each cashier checkout point and the people are just stripping the shelves of the stores bare you know because they sense that there's some kind of trouble coming so it's uh yeah we may have have to expect more of that but just because it's going to rain, it doesn't mean you have to get wet. You know, you can try to shelter yourself and others and try to cultivate each in his own way one's consciousness. But uh, so that's, that all depends upon the decisions that you know, each individual makes but I think the opportunity for those who want it the opportunity is there to develop one's vision of oneself individually and vision of others and vision of the whole reality in terms of pure consciousness but you know the opportunity is also there to become more and more involved in the complexities and perplexities of pursuing uh, the idea of trying to dominate and control and exploit matter. So our destiny is going to be determined by the choices that we all make as individuals, what path we're going to follow and and that's why i think this conversation is so important because your research in your book forbidden archaeology which i i definitely recommend people read i think you have a, a another version for school children is that right or for those that want uh, to well re-read? forbidden forbidden archaeology in its original edition was 900 pages long 
which caused some people to call the book Forbidding Archaeology because it just looks so forbidding. How am I going to pick? How am I going to get through 900 pages? Uh, so we brought out a shorter edition called The Hidden History of the Human Race, which is about 300 pages. You could say it's Forbidden Archaeology Light. <laughs> Well, all I recommend same, all the same all the same ingredients, but just oh yeah, <laughs> short a little bit minus six hundred pages. So uh, that's I just recommend people uh, read your books, um, expand your consciousness, or go to places like Gaia dot com and read about ancient civilizations, ancient archaeology, just expand our conscience because that leads us to what your final words have been in our conversation. It's an understanding of who we really are uh, and our greater purpose in being here. And it's it's quite a profound awakening and uh, I would say liberating to really reconnect with who we truly are. So the more we expand our minds, the more we open to these other possibilities that, you know, there's a gold link chain in coal that is dated for 300 million years. Somebody made it. (laughs) Somebody made it (laughs) or brought it here, you know, at least 300 million years ago. That, you, you, you know, it's like 52 car pickup. Everything has to be you know, reevaluated every idea you have about who we are. And that's important because we don't know who we are. And that's part of our problems right now in our society. So uh, your work is so important in helping us to do that. And as we come to the end of this such fascinating conversation, I want people to know your website, which is mcremo, M-C-R-E-M-O, for Michael Cremo, mcremo.com. Is that the best website, Michael? Yes, that's uh, a good place for people to learn about upcoming interviews, like the one that I hope will come out of out of this, yeah. or upcoming events. Like in May, I'm scheduled to speak at the Earth Origin 2020 event in Sedona, Arizona. Information about that can be found in the schedule link on uh, mcremo.com and then also information about how to get get my books like Forbidden Archaeology or The Hidden History of the Human Race or if people are more interested in the more spiritual and consciousness oriented aspect of, of, of the work of my book Human Devolution would be a, a good place to start so, yes, mcremo.com is an excellent place to start. Okay. Well, it's been such a pleasure and honor to have you on the show, Michael. Thank you for all the great work you're doing for such a source of inspiration. And I uh, just wish you all the best. And uh, to all my listeners, I wish you all the best. And remember to fill your week with peace, love, and harmony. And until next time, take care.